come to Job chapter 11. Again, reading the entire chapter, all 20 verses. Job 11, God's inspired word given to us as people. Give your attention to the reading of it, Job 11. Then Zophar, the Naamathite, answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But, oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding. A wild donkey is born a man. When you prepare your heart, or if you prepare your heart, if you stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity is in your hands, put it far away from you, and let not justice to injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then, You will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail and all way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is is to breathe their last. As for the reading of God's word. So are you a good listener? Do you excel at paying attention, hearing everyone out completely, When others talk to you, you hear with charity and without bias. Well, if you answer this question in the positive, you may think too highly of yourself. For one, listening requires a long attention span, which is becoming an endangered species in our social media age with our short attention spans. Two, solid listening, to, to do solid listening, you have to put aside your own bias, but this takes well-trained humility and self-awareness. Finally, pure listening comes from a sincere love that honestly seeks the good of the other per- person. But to combine all of these, it's no wonder that we all struggle with listening. On a good day, our hearing can be choppy and selective, We catch what we want and ignore the rest. And then on a bad day when we're stressed out, words go in one ear and out the other without touching any gray matter in between. Additionally, listening is especially critical, as you can imagine, in counseling or comforting. 
In one sense, therapists are professional listeners. They're paid to hear our problems. Well, Job's friends came with the express purpose to counsel and console Job. They put on their therapist's hat. And so, as the third and final friend responds to Job, the question arises, how well are they listening? Well, Job has just taken a breath after his third speech. He gives his sore throat a needed rest, and into the silence, Zophar takes the opportunity to share his thoughts. No penny required. Again, we know nothing about Zophar other than he comes from a place called Naaman, which is somewhere in Arabia. Zophar, though, did act as a true friend. He came to help Job upon the ash heap when the rest of society had banished and shamed Job. Zophar's intentions are healthy and benevolent. However, as soon as he opens his mouth, mouth, we get the feeling that he is impatient. His first word is a sharp rhetorical question. Should a multitude of words be unanswered? Can a man of lips be proven right? Zophar charges Zob with a list of vices here. He, one, has too many words, he is lippy, and Job's words are babble and mocking. And this babble has a sense of arrogance and vanity. Job is being a blowhard. Unlike Eliphaz and Bildad, who opened with a measure of sympathy, Zophar commences with a rebuke. Forget comfort, Zophar needs to dress Job down. For his words are proud prattling, disrespectful mocking, and endless ramble. Indeed, Job must be answered. Someone has to shame Job. Thus, so far, we'll happily take on the responsibility. And with this, so far, taps into a moral truth of wisdom. This phrase in verse 2, a multitude of words, is a reference to two other passages. Proverbs 10.19 and Ecclesiastes 5.2. The proverb states, In many words, there is no lack of transgression. Similarly, the preacher remarks how a fool's voice has many words. Now, Zophar's meaning is obvious. He accuses Job of being loquacious, gabby, and talkative, and in the running of the mouth, there is no shortage of sin and folly. This is why Job cannot be proven right. It's why someone needs to shame him. For in the multiplying of words, there will always be the increasing of sin. Zophar, therefore, also brings to mind the ideal wise man. Amid the sages of the wisdom of the sages, the fool is loquacious, while the wise man says little. In Egypt, the wise man was, the wisdom was found in the quiet man. Likewise, Proverbs states, he who restrains his lips is wise. The quiet man is a person of few words, chosen carefully and only given when fitting. No vain utterances escape the quiet man. Well, Job has been increasing folly and sin like rabbits with his avalanche of words, all the while Zophar is the last friend to speak. Zophar postures himself as quick to listen and slow to speak. 
He is the quiet man's sage. And as the wise man, there comes a time when you must answer the fool according to his folly. Job's transgressive folly must be answered. His loquacious vanity needs a good shaming. Pride becomes comes before a fall, and Zophar will supply the needed fall. Thus, he next quotes he next quotes Job to cite a piece of evidence of Job's sinful folly. My doctrine is pure. I am clean in God's eyes. And Job's claim to be pure before God's eyes is obvious a lie for Zophar. In the very making of such a statement, Job's evil folly is exposed. And yet, if you search for this quote, it cannot be found. Zophar quotes Job on something he never said. Zophar attributes to Job something he did not say. Okay, maybe it's just a paraphrase. Zophar is distilling down what Job meant. But again, it's hard to match this up with what Job has been saying. Job did assert that God knew that he was not guilty. A few times he said, if I'm proven right, he did declare that he was blameless, only to follow that up with, I don't know, I hate my life. Moreover, Job admitted he was a sinner and even asked God to forgive him. Thus, Job did not claim to be morally pure, to be sinless. Rather, he only maintained that he hadn't sinned in any way that deserved such severe punishment given to him. He was blameless in regard to the penalty of wrath. This, then, makes you suspicious of Zophar's listening. He hears from Job merely arrogant and foolish babble. But Job has been pouring out his pain and hopelessness. He's practically on suicide watch, despairing that God is sending him to hell for nothing. Job is is in a constant stare of fear and panic from God, and all Zophar hears is a loquacious fool. Zophar, then, is not listening well. He's not addressing Job as he is, but he's projecting on Job his own conception of Job. And isn't this a common problem for us when we attempt to be doctors of the soul, when we counsel? That is, we hear poorly. We don't treat that other person, but you treat what you want the other person to be. This is to trust in your own ideas about the other person more than what they say themselves. We don't listen to the individual, but we hear a type, a class, another same old, same old sinner. So Zophar types, typecasts Job as a talkative fool. All babblers are the same, and the solution for folly is one. You scold them and shame them in their sin. You rebuke their folly. This is what Zophar is doing. His hearing is poor. And his projection is strong. And so he continues to develop his argument against Job. Next, he wishes that God would speak. Oh, that God would speak to you, Job. May he open up his lips to counter your own lips. Of course, on this point, there is agreement. 
Job wants God to talk to him too. The Lord has been hidden in a cloud of wrath and silence. If only God would make clear what's happening to Job. Yet Zophar takes this common ground in a different direction. If God spoke, he would make clear the secrets of his wisdom. For the understanding of God is double-sided. Also, Zophar insists that God made Job forget his sin, that the Lord has suppressed the memories of Job, and there are crimes on Job's record that he cannot remember. Why is Job suffering? Why does Job feel upright? Because God made him forget his iniquity. In this sense, Job deserves worse than he's getting. Job doesn't doesn't truly know his sin, for he cannot remember it, for God has locked up those crimes. Now, this is possible. We all sin, and we're ignorant of some of these sins, and we forget our sins. And the Lord makes us remember our transgression at times to repent. And yet it makes you wonder, how does Zophar know this? What is his basis for claiming that this is what God is doing? making Job forget his sin. Next, though, Zophar launches into praising God for his transcendent and infinite wisdom, higher than the heavens, deeper than Sheol, longer than the earth, broader than the ocean. So is the profound wisdom of God. And Zophar charges Job for attempting to usurp or attain to such a wisdom. Can you discover God's mystery? Can you reach the limit of the Almighty? Can you climb to the heights of heaven? Job, you cannot possess or process the dark fathoms of Sheol. The tallest man cannot reach heaven. The broadest man cannot cover the earth. Zophar underscores our limits as mortals as he trumpets the infinite wisdom and profundity of our God. And he does this to rebuke Job for attempting. Job was trying to reach for heaven, and so Zophar slaps his hand back. Now, this point is all well and good. It's very true. Job himself actually made this very same point, that God is too transcendent and great. But how is Zophar using it, besides to say that Job cannot attain God's wisdom? Well, he concludes, God knows deceitful men, he sees and understands iniquity, a hollow man will get understanding, which is a reference to Job. He calls Job a hollow man, meaning he's brainless. No one is home upstairs for Job. Thus, Zophar highlights God's wisdom to prove his point that God made Job forget his sin. As well as, this means Zophar is speaking for God. God's wisdom is infinite, but Zophar knows the mind of God, and he's going to give it to Job. Zophar isn't just projecting on Job, he's also projecting on God. With a glaring inconsistency, Zophar maintains that God's wisdom is too high, but then that he knows God's wisdom for Job. Remember, Eliphaz did claim a divine spirit spoke to him, and now Zophar insists that he knows the mind of God. This is kind of rich. 
Zophar thinks he knows Job better than Job knows himself, and he is confident that he has the inside scoop on God's wisdom concerning Job's life. Moreover, he doesn't spare the rod, but he's harsh and severe here with Job. He did say in verse 3 that someone needed to shame Job. And so in verse 12, he calls Job a hollow man and a wild ass. Wild donkeys were famous for being notoriously difficult to tame. Domestication was nigh impossible. And hollow means Job lacks a heart, a brain. Thus, this is a good old-fashioned tongue-lashing. Job, you are a brainless ass, a hollow donkey, an incorrigible mule. Zophar is not being politically correct or sensitive here, but he straps Job to a pole and gives him 40 lashes with insults. Now, when we act the fool, harsh words like these are sometimes fitting. And yet it's about fitness. Such shaming has to be justified. Thus, does Zophar have proper warrant? Is Job just being this dumb and stubborn? Well, we have heard Job's anguish, and it's hard to side with Zophar and all his projecting. Furthermore, he, he cloaks these jives behind a white coat. Zophar is the sole doctor to make Job better. And so verse 11 literally reads, A hollow man can grow a heart. A wild donkey can be instructed. Basically, Zophar says, Job, you're brainless, but I can grow a brain in you. I can domesticate your wild streak. Zophar has the cure to make Job whole. He has a wonderful plan for Job's life. And it's a four-step therapy, verses 13 through 14. One, set your heart right. Two, pray more. Three, put away iniquity from your hands. And four, banish injustice from your tents. Zophar the disciplinarian now becomes Zophar the preacher, the herald of repentance. A fourfold condition is all Job must meet. Put away sin, change your heart, and pray more. In short, he tells Job, do better and pray harder. Now again, when it comes to repentance, Zophar is not completely mistaken. Putting away sin, having a better attitude, and prayer are integral parts of repentance. The issue is that, one, he makes it seem too easy. Zophar sounds like he's telling the attic, just stop it, stop it. Second, there is this matter if Job actually needs to repent. Is repentance the correct medicine for what ails Job? Well, according to God in the prologue, it's not. Job is ordering, or Zophar is ordering Job to do chemo when he doesn't have cancer. Finally, there's this certain promise based on the condition to repent. Zophar prescribes repentance for Job as the necessary catalyst for an over-the-top blessing. Indeed, the list of benefits stretch all the way from verse 15 to verse 19. If Job just prays more and stops sinning, 
then Christmas will come in July. He will lift up his head without blemish. He'll be secure and free from fear. He will forget all his misery, and his life will will shine brighter than the sun at noon and be like the gleaming of the morning. Full of hope, you will rest secure, Job. You will lie down for sweet sleep, free from nightmares, and Job will be so at ease and dazzling that many will court his favor. He will be the lucky rabbit's foot that all want to rub. The promise is here as the fruit of repentance is rather amazing. Zophar kind of sounds like the prosperity gospel preacher way before his time. Your problem is sin, repent and pray, and idyllic favors of God will crown him as king. Sin explains everything for Job, and repentance is the miracle cure to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Now, in one sense, Zophar sounds like a prophet of the Mosaic Covenant here, the problem being, he isn't one. The prophets could preach like this for the Mosaic blessings ratified such a hope for putting away sin. But providence is not the Mosaic. Providence doesn't ensure such a link between repentance and prosperity. Zophar is trying to stand inside the theocracy where he doesn't belong. He has a confused covenant theology. Of course, any prophet of prosperity is not complete without some good old scare tactics. Zophar allures Job with a long carrot, but a hard stick is yet in his hand. Verse 20, the eyes of the wicked will perish, there's no escape for the godless, and there is no, their hope is nothing but a dying gasp of bread. Note that Zophar colors his warning to match Job's suffering. Eyesight failing, hopelessness and near death, this is how Job is described himself. Thus, Zophar is telling Job, you presently have the status of the wicked, and the fate of the lawless is fast approaching you. Thus, Job had better get to praying and repenting before it's too late. Prosperity preaching is always accompanied by telling people that their sufferings are curses for their sin. And with this, Zophar signs off. He did scold Job for talking too much, so Zophar closes with the shortest speech so far. And having heard from Zophar, what should our conclusion be about him? He presented himself as the wise, quiet man. Honesty required him to answer Job according to his folly. Thus, he dared not spare the whip, from Job's scoffing back, and he heralded the prosperity of the Mosaic Covenant if only Job would repent and pray. Well, we cannot deny the elements of truth in this speech. Zophar is correct that in many words, often or they can, yield sin and folly. He also properly lauded the infinite wisdom of God, his ingredients of repentance, was basically correct. And as a therapist, he actually gave Job Job hope. And yet, all these pieces of truth seem to miss the mark widely because he wasn't listening to Job 
with eloquence. Zophar didn't hear Job, and so he ended up projecting his ideas both on Job and God. Job has been grieving deeply in pain as one forsaken by God, but Zophar mishears this as the rantings of a fool. He hears Job's tears as coarse joking. Is he deaf? He appealed to God's unknowable wisdom, but then he acted like he could speak for God? Zophar Zophar just knew that God made Job forget his sin. Taking Job as a fool, Zophar then projects on him being brainless and wild. Instead of hearing Job, he assigns to his words that he is one who is as if mentally handicapped. Moreover, Zophar gives Job a false hope of glaring prosperity if he'll just do better and pray. Because Zophar has closed his ears, his speech ends up being the projections of a fool. For he treats Job as a cliché, a stereotype, as just a number. You're a fool, Job, and here are two repentance pills Take two, and you'll be better in the morning. Zophar is the therapist who cannot listen. He is a doctor who writes you a prescription without an examination. Of course, the scary thing about Zophar is that we can see ourselves in him. Our poor listening makes us jump to conclusions. We dismiss people as merely being a kid a woman, a rich person, a loser. We treat not them, but our idea of them. We have all sat in the counselor's chair of Zophar, and we have acted like we can speak for God. To make matters worse, though, Zophar actually pointed in the right direction. He said that the answer lies in the infinite wisdom of God. Now, he wrongly pulled from this that God made Job forget his sin. And yet, God's infinite wisdom does hold a truer word. Namely, in God's wisdom, painful suffering, upright piety, and divine favor don't contradict, but are compatible Remember, this is the illogical rub for Zophar and the friends. To suffer and to be upright? Contradictory. To look cursed and yet to have God's favor? These can't both be true. To say you can be upright and yet endure horrible troubles is like saying 2 plus 2 equals 5 for Zophar. This is such an impossible contradiction that they cannot stomach it, that their minds reject it a priori. There is no way Job can be blameless and suffering what looks to be like the worst curse and for God to still have favor. And yet, in the heavenly wisdom of God, what is contradictory to us humans is logical to him. What is incompatible for us is compatible to God. Indeed, the heavenly compatibility that seems so foolish to Zophar and to us at times 
is precisely what we find in the gospel. For Jesus was perfectly righteous. He suffered the infinite curse of God, and the Father was well pleased with him. In terms of his own sinlessness, Jesus died for nothing. This is stupidity to the world. It is unscientific foolishness. Logic cannot work this way. There is no way this is possible. But what is impossible for man is possible for God. What is foolishness to us is God's heavenly wisdom. Moreover, this divine wisdom has been revealed to us. Zophar presumed to speak for God. But Jesus Christ was the Son. He was appointed to speak for God. He was God to speak for himself. The hidden mystery of the gospel has been revealed clearly to us. Thus, we do not have to guess at this part of God's wisdom. Sure, much God has not revealed to us, but he has revealed to us in history, in the fact of the resurrection, and in the clear preaching of the apostles, the best and most comforting mystery, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the righteous one became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Likewise, in the gospel, our Savior imparts to us an insight so that we don't have to, that we don't act like so far. If divine favor, uprightness, and suffering are compatible in Christ, so they can be for us. Indeed, as Christ's way was the cross, so it is ours. This means that sin does not explain all our trouble. Suffering doesn't necessarily spell God's anger upon us. Repentance and prayer do not necessarily yield prosperity. As Paul says, all who seek to live a godly life in Christ will suffer. Thus the gospel reminds us that we are not under the Mosaic Covenant. We cannot preach as the Old Testament prophets did. And we should not comfort, as did Zophar. To promise prosperity based on repentance is not a promise of God, but it's a whisper of the evil one. Additionally, in the gospel, we learn how Christ died for each one of us as his unique creations and children. Christ listens to your individual prayers. And so in the love of Christ, let us listen to each other with his ears as distinct people. For when we hear with gospel ears, then we are enabled to pass along the consolation of Christ and the compassion of God, who is the God of all comfort. Praise the Lord that what was foolishness to the world is God's wisdom for us, for our salvation, and to pass along the comfort of Christ in all of life's trials and pains. Amen.